Today's sponsor is Datadog. If your business is being driven by software, you know today's applications are more complex than ever. They're sitting on multiple layers of infrastructure and distributed services, and it can be very complicated to manage. Datadog brings visibility into every part of your infrastructure, as well as APM monitoring for your application's performance. Customizable dashboards, collaboration tools, and alerts let you develop your own workflow for observability and incident response. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all of your apps and systems, from Amazon Web Services to Kubernetes to MySQL, so you can get visibility in minutes. You want to get started now? Go to datadog.com slash cloudcast to get started with Datadog and get a free t-shirt. This week's show is brought to you by Media Temple. Whether you're looking to migrate a business-critical site or application to the cloud, Media Temple is your trusted team. Their experts can help you move to the cloud, maximize application performance, and find peace with your infrastructure once you're there. Visit mediatemple.net to learn more about all of their managed cloud services and to unlock the full potential of your virtual private cloud or the public cloud. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast, coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Folks, you know, it's a real nice and sunny day here. Uh, we're getting towards the fall. And before we get into sort of the, the interesting cloud conversations that we're going to have, we want to talk real quick about some uh, unfortunate cloud situations that hopefully you guys are paying attention to. Obviously, there's there's a lot of difficult things going on down in Houston and Texas and Louisiana with the whole Hurricane Harvey, hurricane and flood and tornadoes and stuff. And uh, so before we get into the show, if you have... The opportunity, if uh, if you're capable of doing it, um, you know, help those folks out. Um, we'll put a link to Red Cross. Go to redcross.org. Uh, make a donation. Anything helps. Five dollars, one dollar, ten dollars, a hundred dollars. Um, if your company does a matching thing, that's great. Um, you know, get get a matching thing. But those folks are going to have a hard time for uh, unfortunately a very long time, and they're going to need all the help they can get, whether it's cash donations, food, water, diapers, everything they're going to need uh, for for quite a long time. So uh, if you get a chance, please. Please make a donation. It will uh, it will significantly help down there, and they will greatly appreciate it. With that, talk about some uh, some more cloudy, less dark cloud news. So one of the things that we're very lucky to do is we get a chance to partner with O'Reilly Media, especially when they they have shows and stuff, and they have a lot of really good conferences several times a year. One of the shows that's coming up here in just a few weeks is the Velocity Conference. And Velocity, for anybody who's into DevOps, into SRE, operations, automation, fantastic show. Uh, It'll be in New York City. And we're very lucky this week to have one of the speakers that's going to be presenting, has been presenting for a lot of the O'Reilly shows as an O'Reilly author. And and is, is heavily involved with the community. So very excited to have uh, Seth Vargo, who is Director of Technical Evangelism for HashiCorp. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You know, HashiCorp, we've had a chance to talk to, to Mitchell and some others from your company for a while. We've talked about things like Vagrant and, and DevOps. You are heavily involved with a lot of the, the technologies around secrets, secrets, secrets management. Give us a little bit of your background because you've got quite a bit of interesting background around technology as well as being an author. Give us a little bit of a sense of, of your background before we jump into stuff. You know, I did my undergrad at Carnegie Mellon. You know, I have all of the degrees and diplomas to to kind of back up what I say. But, uh, you know, I worked at 
place called Custom Ink for a while. They're an online t-shirt retailer doing operations. I worked at Chef Software, formerly known as OpsCode, and the people who make Chef and you know Chef provisioning, um, et cetera, um, for about two, two and a half years. And uh, I'm coming up on my three year at HashiCorp in this October. So it's been a pretty exciting journey. And I work on all of the tools. So we make, at HashiCorp, we make a bunch of uh, open source tools, Vagrant Packer, Surf Console, Terraform Vault, and Nomad. And um, you know today we're going to be talking about Vault, which which is the secrets management solution, fully open source that we have at HashiCorp, uh, and kind of how it can solve organizational secret problems, whether you're, you know, a tiny startup of two or three people or a big, you know, massive 20, 30,000 person enterprise. So Vault is, you know, fundamentally, I think we've talked to Kevin who runs a product and so forth. He he kind of lumps it in as sort of like an HSM. Obviously, it's a, it's a software product, but it fits in that space of helping you manage encryption, helping you manage keys. You know, what other kind of domains does it does it sort of fit in where you know what where does somebody wake up in the morning and go okay i have this type of problem vault is is the type of technology that's going to help me solve that yeah that's a great question brian i think it's helpful to take a step back and uh you know let's travel back in time about 20 or 30 years when you think of the traditional data center uh it was a brick and mortar building maybe you owned it or maybe it was a co-located space and everything inside of that data center was trusted you had everything behind a single firewall, and your biggest concern was physical access to that data. Uh, what happens if someone comes and pulls you know, the hard drive out of my rack of servers? And there wasn't really communication over the public wire that didn't go through some type of firewall that was controlling all the inbound and outbound traffic. And similarly, applications were very monolithic. You know, you had your Java app or your COBOL app, and everything that application needed was self-contained. So you weren't communicating over the network with other services. Now, if we fast forward to really about eight to 10 years ago, we start seeing this proliferation and this idea of a service-oriented architecture where not only are we leveraging cloud technologies, so we might not be in our own data center where we can trust the machines on which the code is executing, but not all of the information is contained on a single application. Uh, Resources are shared, and instead of a physical firewall appliance that we can ensure all traffic goes through, we have rules. And I use rules in, in air quotes here because there is no concept of all my traffic must flow through this particular barrier. And like inside of this service-oriented architecture, we have the our microservices that need to communicate with each other, and they throw they flow between these services and potentially through third-party APIs. Um, you know, there's a ton of services out there. Postgres is a service. Things like hosted database services, things like hosted DNS services, where we need to be able to communicate with those APIs. And as such, the security threats in a a modern world have changed. Drastically, Uh, instead of having armed guards at the door of our data center, we have to really think about the way our applications are communicating with each other. The biggest threats are now unauthorized access at the code layer, things like unauthenticated APIs, credentials that last forever so that a hacker can, you know, brute force them or gain access to your application's data and lack of a break glass procedure in those situations. What do you do in the event of, you know, an Ashley Madison or a LinkedIn style breach? where your alerting and your monitoring is telling you, hey, you have a data breach, how quickly can you respond to that while you know, minimizing customer downtime um, but not having to you know, SSH into 100,000 machines to revoke a credential? So the easiest way to think about Vault is it's really modern secrets management or secrets as a service. And there are a number of 
of tools out there, some that have existed for a long time and some that are relatively new to the market, that do one piece of what Vault does. And I'll give you a really classic example. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, oh, what's the difference between Vault and you know Amazon's KMS or Google's Key Store? Um, and the answer is very simple. Vault provides this thing called a transit backend, um, which provides encryption as a service. And it's almost exactly the same as you know Amazon KMS or Google Key Storage, where you ask the clouds to encrypt some data for you and they manage the encryption key all through an API. But the transit backend is just one of eight backends built into Vault, and Vault has a plugin architecture, so it can be extended even further. Um, and for this reason, it's sometimes hard to talk about Vault because it solves so many different use cases. And again, it depends on the needs of your organization and how your organization is structured on how you might use some of these features. You know, one of the things that Aaron, Elp, and I have, have always sort of said about about the HashiCorp products, you know, the projects that you guys build and the products and so forth is, you know, they they always have a really strong operational. I don't want to say bias, that's the wrong word, but you know, they're they're always built from the perspective of like if we were using these ourselves, you know, what would we what we build into them? And, and I think we've always been, you know, really positive about what they've done because a lot of times products get built um, that sort of fit a category. You know, they fit and they're they're trying to look like something that the competition makes, or you know, they're gonna fit into a certain category that an analyst has. And we've always sort of commented that the HashiCorp products are always like, no, 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 they they go that next extra step, which is the thing that operations wish they had built in where it had some flexibility they had built in. So yeah, highlighting that I think is is really important. Your talk at uh, at Velocity is is about microservices, giving that historical context. You talked about, uh, you know, SOA and, and people will say, well, you know, microservices is kind of a next generation of SOA, but really it's highlighting you've got distributed types of systems, distributed places where traffic comes in and out, distributed places where data is stored. Why are we seeing so much more conversation about secrets and secrets management now in the microservices space? Is it is it because things are changing more frequently and, and the secrets are changing more frequently? Or is there just kind of a fundamental connection between microservices and, and secret management? I, I think there's a, a few reasons, but I do want to backtrack real quick on something you said earlier about you know how HashiCorp kind of solves the right problems. Just a real quick, you know, one minute story. Um, Vault was never going to be an open source project. We built what was not called Vault at the time because we offer a hosted service in which you have to give us cloud credentials. And we needed to be able to prove deterministically that they were not at risk. So we built this tool that solved our problem. And then uh, we had some conversations internally and I had suggested, hey, this should just be an open source tool. We should rebrand it and make it something. Um, and that's that's part of the reason why a lot of people love our tools is that we use them internally. We provision our own infrastructure with Terraform. We secure our own data with Vault. You know, we do our development environments with Vagrant. I think it's something unique about our company, which is we we really take dogfooding uh, seriously, and we use all these tools internally. But back to your back to your question about you know why is this becoming so important? I think there's three main reasons. Um, the first is we started recently to see a massive uptick in data breaches. Um, I, I forget the statistic off the top of my head, but there's almost a hundred times more data breaches in the first quarter of this year than there were in like the past. 20 years combined. It's like super exponential. A lot of that is because we're, we have to rethink the way that we secure our data. And a lot of these big uh, enterprise organizations that have been around for a very long time, the credit card processors, the big banks, 
they're performing this cloud migration because they want to leverage the elasticity of the public cloud. And the challenge is that a lot of them are just lift and shift. They're taking their existing VMware applications and putting them on you know, Amazon's hypervisor or Google or Azure's hypervisor. While that works and the application still functions, we have to think about security holistically. Um, no longer are those applications behind a firewall. Um, they're behind a security group. But those rules might be different, and we have to rethink how accessible that data is. I think that's the first thing, is we see data moving and applications moving from a physical data center that's well-guarded and, and understood to public cloud environments that are, are slightly less understood. And I'm not saying that the public cloud is less secure uh, by any means. I'm saying that it's different security. We have to think about things differently. I think the second reason we're starting to see this is just the number of services. In a traditional you know, monolithic application, you have the banking application, and it does everything. And it gets deployed you know, once a quarter, once a half, once a year, and everything is self-contained. There's no external communication. So we don't have to worry about things like man-in-the-middle attacks or, you know, what happens in the event when someone sends too big of a, a TCP packet to something to overload it. Um, because everything's self-contained. We're not communicating across services. But more recently, we realized that in order to scale our services horizontally and vertically, we need to break them apart. Because some services need to run 100 instances and other services might get away with two or three. But then we have to think about the communication between those services, which is, okay, now I have these two services. How can I guarantee they can talk to each other? If service A sends a message to service B, how does it guarantee that not only is service A the right service A, but service B is the right service B? If someone else is sitting in on that network, uh, how can they make sure that those requests are authenticated from both the client side and the server side? This is where we start talking about things like TLS and mutual TLS, which is the client-side validation of TLS. And then the third piece is a little bit different, which is the human component. Um, you know, everything, point one and point two are very technical, but point three is the human component. As we see tools like Kubernetes and Nomad and Mesos and Mesosphere kind of explode, um, you know, Pivotal, Cloud Foundry, et cetera, the traditional way that we as operators, debug applications changes. Um, if you talk to anyone who's worked in the ops space for a while, they'll probably tell you their favorite tool is, you know, tail dash F and, and cat. <laughs> right. And, and when you start moving into these scheduled architectures, these cloud architectures where you have, you know, 500 instances of an application running across all three major clouds, you can't tail dash F the cloud. And oftentimes we see shortcuts um, to enable that level of behavior where, you know, we're aggregating logging data in an insecure way so that we can use those familiar tools, um, but we don't add security around it. And I always just like to pose the question to, to any of the listeners and promise that this question will last for 20 years. Uh, how many of you have a production credential on your laptop or, or um, you know, Surface or whatever right now? And your first answer is probably like, eh, no, I don't have any of that. And then I like to pose the second question, which is, can you push or pull production code from your current device? You know, do you have access to GitHub? Do you have access to GitLab or Bitbucket or some type of internal code store? And if the answer to that is yes, you have access to production data. And if someone gains access to your laptop, they could produce malicious code into the environment. And if you left the company today, how many people know that you have that production credential on your laptop and how quickly could they be able to revoke it? Um, because sometimes employees leave on good terms and sometimes they leave on not so good terms. And in those situations, we need to be able to revoke access 
to anything that that employee previously uh, created or continues to have access to. And this is something that is often an after site. It's a wiki or a playbook that an ops team or an IT team has to go through and check off some boxes. And we know that humans are really bad at repetitive tasks, but computers are really good at it. And that's one of the reasons why Vault is so successful, is it not only manages you know, the security of the applications and the communication between the applications, but it also has a human element to it as well. You can think of Vault as encoding or codifying all of the policies and procedures you have around you know, onboarding employees, de- uh, removing employees, promoting, depromotion, but it's all codified. It's not a wiki. It's not uh, you know, a, a page in some internal site. It's, it's in code, which means it's going to be executed identically every single time. No, it makes, it makes, a, it makes a ton of sense. Um, I, I sort of asked this question. It's one of these ones where I, I think the answer is probably all of them. But I mean, do you see as you're working with different organizations or you're talking with security teams, is there one area that that they find is is more critical or they're spending more time on? Is it is it key rotation? Is it encryption strength? Is it auditing capabilities? I mean, obviously all of them sort of have to be there, but you know, in, in today's world is are, are any of those things or any element of, of what Vault delivers kind of more important than than others? I think it depends on the size of the organization. Um, in some of the big Uh, financial institutions, it's definitely more focused on the compliance and auditing side of things. Vault enables you to come in and check so many checkboxes off of the auditing and compliance report. You can definitively say we have no credential that lasts longer than 30 minutes. You can definitively say that we've rotated every key in our infrastructure in the past 30 days. It it lets you check off those boxes. And, And if anyone's ever seen some of those compliance forms, they're hundreds of pages of checkboxes. And alleviating any amount of that pain is something that security, uh, you know, security professionals love to do. I think in, in medium and smaller organizations, it's this dynamic credential process that, that really gets people excited about Vault. They're less concerned about key rotation and, and like the, you know, the dur- durability and high availability and those types of things. And more concerned with, I want every instance of my application to have a unique database credential. So instead of having a DBA or someone, you know, manually create a Postgres username and login, then copy and paste it into a text file, they want each of these applications at boot to talk to Vault and get a database credential. And Vault will programmatically generate those database credentials for you on the fly. What does that actually buy you, though? Well, the answer there is that if an application host has unauthorized access, someone SSHs into it, we have anomaly detection that indicates it has a problem, we can revoke that one database credential and not touch the rest of the fleet. Um, this, this is what we call the break glass procedure in Vault, which is if you think you've been breached, how do you recover from that breach while minimizing the downtime, right? You could take your whole app offline, but that's going to impact your users and your customers. So by having each application have its own database credential, we create this thing called provenance, which is a one-to-one mapping of the application to its credentials. And this is very important as you start scaling out because you want to be able to map things back to audit logs and uh, anomaly detection software and application logs to see where there might be some funky things going on. And then on the flip side of that, again, there's the human element. Let's say your application developers need access to AWS um, and they need an API key in order to maybe deploy some stuff in a staging environment or their development environment. It takes over 10 clicks to create an, an IAM credential via the web UI and you can do it via the CLI, but then the person who created those credentials sees them. And then they email them or give them to the coworker. And now two people have the same credentials. We don't have 
provenance anymore. With Vault, one of those employees can authenticate to Vault using something like a username and password, Active Directory integration, or even log in with GitHub, and then request their own AWS credentials. Vault will programmatically generate them and return them just to that user. So when we're looking in the CloudWatch logs, for example, and we see, oh, this particular access key is performing malicious behavior, we know exactly who is doing that. We don't narrow it down to two people, we narrow it down to one person because that's the only person who had access to that key. And those keys have a lifetime, just like the database credentials. So instead of a key that lives until someone goes and deletes it, Vault can enforce what we call a lease. And it's very similar to like a DHCP or DNS lease. When you get a credential in Vault, that credential does not live forever. It has a lifetime. And that lifetime is configurable. It might be 30 minutes. It might be 30 days. But at the end of that lifetime, Vault will revoke that secret. And this helps prevent secret sprawl and the proliferation of all of these unused secrets, which ultimately decreases the surface area for an attack. It makes sense. And again, it goes back to that that whole premise of think about what real sort of problems people have. I mean, being able to, to do you know, user level isolation of that user level isolation of just not just the the credential, but sort of the process of how they get that. I mean, it, it allows you to not only have employees, contractors, you know, contractors out of the country that might be sort of a second or third party contractor. I mean, you, that level of granularity becomes really, really important in terms of, like you said, not only how you distribute credentials, give out keys, but also how you revoke them. Given, you know, I think you've done a really nice job of establishing kind of the the criticality of, you know, secrets, secrets management, encryption management in in these new environments because of lots of inputs, lots of outputs, you know, the doors aren't where the doors used to be type of thing. How do we make sure that um, that key management system vault stays highly available? I mean, if I lose that thing, now all of a sudden my applications can't talk to each other, I can't log into stuff. How do you ensure that it's highly available? How do you deal with you know, sort of disasters and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, One thing to clarify is that Vault is not a proxy. This is a really common misconception. Um, When you want to talk to a database, your application requests a credential from Vault. Vault goes out, talks to the database, generates the credential, and returns it back to the application. From that point, Vault's work is done. The application communicates directly with the database. So Vault isn't a proxy. Not every request and response goes through Vault. It's only the generation and the renewal of secrets that goes through Vault. So it's not something that is um, you know, sitting in the middle of every request. Gotcha. But there's still obviously a desire for high availability. Uh, and in that mode, Vault has a number of different what we call backends or storage backends for high availability. Um, Vault is architected in a way where it, it has a, a client server model. It's an HTTPS server. And then it stores data in a backend. And you can think of a backend, the easiest one to think of is the file system. Whenever data comes into Vault, Vault is going to encrypt that data and then persist it encrypted on the file system. Now, those plug those backends are pluggable. So for example, you could store that data in something like console, which is one of our open source service discovery tools. You could store it in something like etcd, which is the tool that backs Kubernetes storage. Um, there's a number of configurable storage backends out there. Vault itself operates in a highly available manner based off of the storage backend. So if you're using a storage backend that is highly available, Vault will be highly available. You could run three instances, 10 instances, a million instances if you wanted to, but they're all going to delegate to the, sh- the same shared storage backend. Now, in the case of the file system, that fi- the file system is not highly available, 
So you can't utilize that for a highly available vault installation. You'd have to use something like console, which is highly available and supports locking in order to reach, you know, high availability mode. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now it makes sense. Makes sense. And, and obviously I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, well-documented folks can go take a look at it. Probably not, uh, not something you're going to pick up completely in, in five minutes on the podcast without a whiteboard and, and lots of docs. One of the things that, that obviously happens whenever we talk about microservices is the conversation eventually moves to, great, you built this application, let's deploy it into production. Uh, and the conversation of containers, container schedulers comes up, whether it's Kubernetes or Mesos or you know OpenShift or Cloud Foundry or whatever it is out there, ECS from AWS. What do people have to kind of be aware of in terms of, of secrets management when it in the context of of schedulers and orchestrators and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when we think about the move, and this kind of goes back to our conversation about lift and shift before, um, when we start deploying applications into a container scheduler or a scheduled environment, um, a lot of our previous assumptions get voided. Like uh, a really good example is in like a traditional physical data center, we hard code IP addresses because we know that's where they're going to be. And when we move to the cloud, we can still get away with that a little bit. But when we move to a container scheduler, such as like Nomad or Kubernetes, it's impossible. The The container scheduler is going to put our application wherever it wants to. And in the event that a host dies or the cluster capacity changes, the scheduler can move that application at any given time. And that's something we have to be able to account for. Um, so totally out of the, the realm of Vault, is that your applications need to be uh, what I like to call cloud native. They need to have a way to gracefully start and stop. They need to be able to drain their HTTP connections if they're a server or drain their RPC connections. They need a way to be graceful in this environment. They need to respond well to um, you know, being able to be moved around. Um, you know, I like to always draw the analogy, which is the traditional, you know, brick and mortar data center was very similar to humans. You couldn't pick up a human and move them to a new house without a lot of stress, right? There was a lot of moving of things. And when we move to a container architecture, things are a little bit more nomadic. Uh, you just pick everything up and go. And you need to be able to do that very quickly and very responsibly. When it comes to credentials, when we introduce Vault into the story, then the, the same principles apply, but they're extended even further which is whenever that application is scheduled, we want to give that application or that container all of the things it needs to communicate at boot time. So instead of the application being responsible for communicating with Vault, getting its credential to talk to the database, getting its credential to communicate via TLS or doing some type of encryption as a service, um, we rely on the scheduler to do that. So, and this is where at HashiCorp we have open source the Vault Service Broker, which is part of the Open Service Broker API, integrates with OpenShift, Kubernetes, and Cloud Foundry, which you run as a service inside your cluster, um, like as a system service inside your cluster. And whenever applications are scheduled, they bind to that service, and that service handles the complexity of interacting with Vault and, it, and getting all of the environment variables and the secrets that that particular application needs. And that's all configured you know, in advance based off of the app name or the app ID or something like that. Now, in the event of uh, Nomad, which is our open source application scheduler, we have a bit deeper integrations. Um, and that's not because we're biased. It's just because we control both of those sure. tools. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so we can, we can build really deep integrations. And um, this is all very heavily documented. But when you integrate Vault and Nomad, you can get uh, job uh, specific permissions. So in, in Nomad, a job is kind of similar to like a Kubernetes pod to draw an analogy. Um, and when Nomad and Vault are interacting together, you can use Vault 
not only as the authentication for the application layer, which is, you know, can this app get these database secrets? Can this app encrypt this data? But you can use it for the human layer as well. Is the person who is submitting this job allowed to submit this job? Are they allowed to submit this many copies of the job, et cetera? So it's both a human authenticator and an application layer authenticator. Well, listen, um, we have covered a ton of stuff uh, just in a, in a short period of time and want to thank you for, for the time today. Let me ask you one last question. Um, I've had a chance to get out to Pittsburgh a couple of times this year. You you know went to school there. You live there. Give, us, give folks just you know two minutes real quick, like, how has Pittsburgh um, evolved back into becoming kind of a really first-class tech city? Like, what's what's going on there? What are some of the cool projects going on? What's the culture around Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I moved here in '09, and it's it's changed so drastically. I think there's a, there's a few big key players. Um, Google Pittsburgh is a, a huge office. It's actually where most of the um, site reliability engineers live. Um, especially for ads, which is, as you know, where Google makes all their money. Um, Apple has a big presence here. And more recently, in the past five to 10 years, um, Uber has made a big presence here. The Advanced Technologies Group, um, which is the self-driving car division of Uber, is headquartered here in Pittsburgh. They employ thousands of people uh, on on the self-driving cars. And if you ever visit Pittsburgh, especially recently around the Shadyside area, it's almost futuristic. You see these like spaceship looking cars driving around with rotating uh, lasers on top and they're, they're driverless. Um, they're driving people around via, via computers. You know, I think Carnegie Mellon and Pitt and Duquesne and Chatham, the universities in the area, um, finally got around to curating a startup culture and, and getting people to stay in the area. Um, so we're starting to see a big increase in population, a big increase in technology. And then another big key player is in the past two years, we, we had a bunch of meetups, the Ruby meetup, the Node.js meetup, the Python meetup, and it was hard. And we had a bunch of conferences. We ran DevOps Days Pittsburgh and Steel City Ruby. And uh, one of the, the organizers there, Justin Reese, decided to form um, like a co-op or coalition called Code and Supply. And Code and Supply is a nonprofit organization that runs basically all of the conferences and all of the meetups in Pittsburgh now. So everything's unified. It has a single budget uh, and it kind of falls under this umbrella org, which helps get cross-pollination as well, right? People who used to attend just the Python meetup are now going to the Go meetup and, and vice versa. So a lot of really good idea sharing and a lot of really cool industry up and coming. Oh, we also have Duolingo. I can see Duolingo outside of my window. So if you have that app installed on your phone, they're also headquartered here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, very cool. It's uh, I, Like I said, I've been there a couple of times. One of the times uh, my Uber from the airport was one of those uh, self-driving cars. They were still doing some beta testing, so there was a driver in the passenger seat. But uh, that's a little freaky, especially at night when there's when there's nobody behind the wheel. Um, but great food. Uh, if you're into sports, the stadiums are fantastic. They're all down on the river, really good architecture. Um, so if you get a chance, go out to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a very, very cool city. Um, it's, uh, you know, nice people, the weather, you get all four, four seasons. So definitely a plug for Pittsburgh. Seth, th- thanks so much for being on the show today. Um, you know, folks, like we said, um, Seth is going to be speaking at Velocity in New York City here in just a few weeks, uh, along with a ton of other very, very smart folks, a lot of interesting topics. We will have a link in the show notes if you want a discount code to go to the show if you're in and around New York City. Um, so for Aaron and for Seth, that's Thanks again for being on the show, folks. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.